There's a passage of scripture that my heart was drawn to that I found to be so blessed to my own soul over the years. There's one verse we shall center our attention upon found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read the little broader context, but then we'll consider the last verse, verse 21 of this chapter. And when I was looking at my notes, uh, I was surprised at how long it's been since I have expounded upon this particular verse, although it is used and has been used many times in reference in uh, preaching. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 17 through 21, the Apostle Paul writes as God directed him by his Holy Spirit, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This verse 21 is so glorious, so full of meaning in these few words, that it has been said of it, there is no sentence more profound in the whole of Scripture. For this verse embraces the whole ground of the sinner's reconciliation to God. That's quite a thing to say. Embraced here the whole ground, complete ground of the sinner's reconciliation to God. Our Apostle Paul had spoken in verse 18 of the gospel ministry as the ministry of reconciliation. And now he's giving the one only way of reconciliation to God, none other. This is it completely. God, whom the sinner is alienated from, God, whom the sinner is the rebel against. Men are so estranged and alienated from God because of sin. They're separated from him. Separated from the one who created them. Sin, then, because God is holy. He's always holy. He's never not holy. Infinite in holiness. Because God is holy, sin incurs the wrath of God, which is very real and very much taught to us, of course, in Scripture. Even the Lord Jesus Christ taught it so plainly. And the only way that the wrath of God against the sinner can be removed is if God removes the sins by a judicial act of his own. And the only one to whom he will proclaim righteous is one who possesses not simply a general righteousness. There must be a perfect righteousness. A perfect righteousness for God to accept one. In the sight of God, 
as we're taught in Scripture, how grievous is the matter of sin in man. We know, of course, it's universal without exception. As Paul tells us in Romans 3, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It defiles every part of man's being. It defiles him in his mind, his desires, his actions, his thoughts. There's a description given in Isaiah chapter 1 that's very telling in verses 5 and 6 of that great prophet the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot. Even under the head there's no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. It's a picture of the sinner. It requires God to do something about that. Sin defiles every constituent part of our being. It renders one unclean, unfit for habitation with the living God. It can only place under the sentence of death and hell. Very clearly, of course, taught in Scripture. It remains that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. As in Ezekiel 18 verse 4. And as we're taught in Revelation 20, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But it's only felt in its loathsomeness and its horror when it's brought into the consciousness of a sinner by the work of the Holy Spirit. There comes an awakening. There must be an awakening for a sinner to know what he or she is by nature, to know something of what they are. And that only comes by a convicting work of God's Holy Spirit. That's an incredible thing when it takes place. And then... When sin is known in its nature, when it's known something of the horrific nature of sin, one realizes that this brings trouble indeed to the soul. But it's not simply because of what it's done to them. That's the world's way. That's the world's way. You take care of something because, or you do something, or you change your way because of what it's going to do to you if you don't. But there's something so different when God works in one, when the truth of God comes to one's heart about themselves. They come to realize the horrendous thing about sin is not what it's done to them. It's what it's done to their relationship with the living God. As Isaiah and Isaiah 59, your sins have separated between you and your God. They do not have the true source of all blessedness. They do not have peace because there is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. They do not have a real joy. They'll have a hypocrite's joy maybe that'll last for a minute. They don't have a basis for joy. They don't comprehend the wondrousness of what real life is all about because they're separated from the source of all peace and joy and life. And this one, the sinner who becomes conscious, aware that they are a sinner, that they are estranged from God, that they do and shall come into a solemn, all-searching judgment that sinner alone is in the position to hear the gospel, the good news that God gave. And so, 
it's a wondrous thing to come and realize that the gospel is telling us what God has done. The gospel is telling us and showing us the only remedy for one who is in sin. The gospel shows us the one way of reconciliation to God himself. And the word that declared to the broken-hearted sinner is be ye reconciled to God for which means in the sense of because this is the only reason for he hath made him speaking of the son of God the Lord Jesus Christ he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So, the gospel ambassador, the one God chooses, sends forth to declare his word, has only one message of reconciliation to God, none other. One message to proclaim to the sinner conscious of sin and gives the only terms upon which a permanent peace is secured with God. The gospel ambassador never comes to negotiate terms with one. Only to strictly declare the unchanging, non-negotiable, unalterable, permanent terms of his sovereign, the king of kings, and lord of lords. The title of his office, describing also the duties of his office, is found in verse 18. The ministry of reconciliation. The message to which he is entrusted is called, in verse 19, the word of reconciliation. And with full authority of his king, he calls for a response to his sovereign's terms with be ye reconciled to God. Those to whom he is sent have offended the king of kings. They've offended the God of all glory. They've broken his laws. They've rebelled against him. They've become aliens and enemies, transgressors, and shown it by wicked works wicked thoughts, wicked desires, wicked actions, wicked responses. And again, the most serious result of sin is not what it's done to you or to me. It's what it has done to God and the relationship with Him. Paul uses the words in Ephesians 4.18, alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Alienated, no true consciousness of God, no true reality of who God is, no recognition of the infinite holiness of God, a rejection in thoughts that they shall die and stand in judgment before him. The sinner is in an agreement with hell. He's in an agreement with the old adversary, the devil himself. In Isaiah 28, 15, it's spoken of as those who make a covenant with hell. A covenant with hell. It's to be under divine wrath and anger, which is very real. Some of the old Puritans, when they spoke of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that takes place in the sinner, God chooses to do that work in. They spoke of wrath being let into the soul. Becoming conscious that God is holy, infinite, infinite judge, righteous, just in all of his ways and the sinner must stand before him
anger and wrath is in God against sin, which will not be lessened. It will only burst forth in more fury in the day of inescapable judgment and in the day when God judges this world and he will do so. No matter what religion says or how they try to smooth it over, God will judge the world in righteousness as we're absolutely taught in Scripture. And we're taught in Psalm 7:11 that he's angry with the wicked every day. long-suffering he's merciful even to the sinner in this world but his mercies are even greater when the sinner comes to know they have sinned that they live in sin that they live in alienation from God God is righteous the Lord revengeth we're taught in Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 in Romans 2, 5, after thy hardness and in a penitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You have to mark it down. You have to know it full well. That reconciliation to God doesn't have a thing with a change taking place in you. Reconciliation to God is not you changing. Oh, when you come under God's work of grace, you will change. And through the reconciling work of God's grace and by what we term regeneration or the new birth, the giving of life in Christ, you will change. But your relationship to God has nothing to do with the change taking place in you. So what do you mean? What do you mean, Pastor? Reconciliation. Reconciliation has purely to do with the change in your relationship to God. That's what reconciliation has to do with. Not what happens in you, but what takes place in your relationship to God himself. The ambassador of Christ in his stead declares, be ye reconciled to God. That's the message. It's God you offend against. It's he to whom you become an enemy. In sin, in rebellion, in self-will, and saying, I'll do what I want to do, irrespective of what's right or wrong or what God makes known, and sin against even the law God puts in conscience. Submission to evil and evil desires rather than submission to God that makes you an alien to him and to his righteous kingdom and it's upon his terms. It's upon God's terms alone, his only, that reconciliation, harmony, peace, concord between you and the sovereign ruler of the whole universe can come. So what's the ground of that reconciliation to God? Upon what basis can the sinner be reconciled to the holy God of all? Preaching that omits this ground of reconciliation to God is neither scriptural nor is it gospel. The message is be ye reconciled to God for, because, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Gospel means good news. Good news. You remember at the birth of the Savior, the angels proclaimed 
glad tidings of great joy. Good news. The good news of the gospel is that God has done for us in Christ and by Christ alone what we could never do for ourselves. That God has done for us what we never could or would do for ourselves. The sinner, one who's truly afflicted with the sense of his or her sin vileness, their separation from God, and their fearful subjection to coming judgment. When they hear with the heart this good news, when they hear in truth this gospel, when they become hearers of the word of God in their soul, it brings the strongest pull that soul will ever experience. The drawing appeal that that soul will come finally to stop resisting the glorious truth that God makes known in the gospel of his son. This entreaty, though they have done their worst against God, it declares that God has done his best for them. They've done their worst. God does his best. And though they will not yet formulate the doctrine, they will have formed in them the consciousness that what God's strict and exact justice demanded of them, he has provided by his love by sovereign, wondrous love. How is it made known? Well, clearly in the gospel, as in 1 John 4, 9, and this was manifested, the love of God toward us, and that God sent his Son into this world to become the propitiation for our sins. That signifies the sacrifice that satisfies his justice. And averts his just wrath. If you hear in your heart. If you hear. In your heart. If you embrace. This love in your soul. If you come to know it. You'll surrender in faith. Into the arms of him whose love you now know. And you're glad to come to him on his terms. If you come to know the wondrousness of God's sovereign love, if it becomes a conscious reality in you and you behold it and comprehend it in truth, that's the greatest day of your life. And what is that ground? The only ground upon which God will receive sinners. That ground for which he is reconciled to them. God can never be less than he is. God is God. As he's made known in this word, so is he. I think of the psalmist, what is in Psalm 90, as thy fear, so art thou, in essence. God is God, never less than he is, infinite in holiness, righteousness, and justice. He can never, ever require less than his justice demands for complete satisfaction. But you know what the wonder is? We could never meet his demands in ourselves, never. We could begin, spend every minute of our lives endeavoring to do so. Never meet God's just demands. The wonder is that God himself, God, the living God, God who created all things, God who is the reason for your existence, God himself removed the cause of the enmity and estrangement to him. He did it.
he satisfied the demands of his holy law himself. The offended party, supplying for the offending party, the sinner, both the removal of sin and the acceptable righteousness in his sight. A perfect righteousness the sinner has in his sight who comes to hear and believe and receive this truth. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. God, Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, God hath commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 8, 3 and 4, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his only begotten Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us, not by us, in us. Perfect righteousness God gives. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Hearing His love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To this day, I've said it many times. I've said it to God in prayer many times. I can't comprehend being loved by him. I don't deserve it. I deserve just the opposite. Nothing good do I deserve from his hand. And yet he has made known a love that encompasses so much gloriousness that I couldn't resist it. God conquers us not by overwhelming us with almighty power. He conquers us by grace and love and mercy made known to us. First making known to us what we are. What has happened to our position and our, our, uh, our very knowledge of him. And then he shows us a love that is so glorious, so wondrous, so magnificent, so drawing in its appeal, that we're drawn to Him. We're overcome by grace and mercy and love made known to us. So we have the only message the only message the gospel ambassador is commissioned and authorized to deliver for the reconciliation of rebel sinners against the God of all glory, the sovereign of all. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a declaration. What a declaration we have here. The sinless one. The one who had no sin. The sinless one, God sent forth to make sin for us. For he hath made him to be sin for us, but who knew no sin. He who had no sin, knew no sin, entertained no sin, thought no sin, performed no sin, made sin for us. God did not make his incarnate son a sinner 
He never at any time sinned. Never. Because you see, redemption from sin, made known early in God's dealings, required an altogether sinless one to stand in his judicial sight in the place of sinners to bear their sins. This was before pictured in the spotless lamb in the Old Testament. The lamb that God would select or, or the priest would select for sacrifice in the Old Testament had to be spotless. Christ suffered for sin. He was made sin for us. He was put in our place. But yet in himself, he never sinned. He was spotless. He was pure. He was just. Perfectly righteous. Or else he could not have been accepted in our place. Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, as in 1 Peter 3, 18. When it said that he has made sin, what a word. He hath made him to be sin for us. He was judicially constituted sin. Though he'd never sinned. But he became, as being made sin for us, the object of the wrath of God and his judgment against our sins. Now this gospel, of course, was preached by Isaiah the prophet seven centuries before Christ was incarnated. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Peter could write, drawing from Isaiah, in 1 Peter 2.24, whose own self bare our sins in his own body, on the tree. He, the incarnate Son of God, God become man, never at any time knew sin. He knew no sin. He wasn't acquainted with it. I think most of us understand the word know in Scripture is not simply a cognizance, not simply an intellectual knowing of something. It has to do with relationship. The Lord Jesus Christ had no acquaintance with sin. He had no relationship with sin. We did. We came into the world married to it, as it were. But he had no relationship to sin. None whatsoever. He knew no sin. And it qualified him to be our sin bearer. The one only who could take away our sins. Plainly declared in Scripture, of course, is his perfect righteousness. He was tempted in all points, everything, like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, as Hebrews 7.26 Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, 1 Peter 2, 22. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin, 1 John 3, 5. He personally stated it. No one else could say in truth what he said. As in John chapter 8, verse 29, that he does all the ways, always, at all times, those things which please the Father. No one could issue a challenge 
by a question as he did. In John chapter 8, verse 46, which of you convinceth me of sin? Coming a few hours before the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ says, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. I'll tell you what, if there's a least taint anywhere, the adversary knows how to find it. He taught us to pray. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But you never will hear him praying for forgiveness. He had no sin. None. Whatsoever. His perfect sinlessness was witnessed by everyone who came in contact with him. Like the lamb brought before the slaughter. Yet the perfect lamb of God. Pilate says, I find in him no fault at all. His wife comes to him and says, don't have anything to do with that just man. Just suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. He's crucified. And a thief, who shall that day be with him in paradise, looks at another thief. And he says, we're here. Because we ought to be here in essence. This man hath done nothing amiss. Those who witnessed his dying went away, smote their breasts. They knew he was absolutely just, righteous. The centurion, the Roman centurion, obviously God saved Says, surely this was the Son of God. Surely this is a righteous man. But you know what's most important of all? It's what the Father had to declare. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Mount of Transfiguration when Elijah and Moses come representing the law and the prophets and the Lord Jesus Christ is there and the voice of the Father comes in a reproving way in some ways but in an instructive way this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased hear ye him God speaks now only through him Hear him. Peter brings the convicting word on the day of Pentecost as God comes by the work of his spirit. And no one's going to hear or believe without the work of his spirit. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised from the dead. Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. There's only one reason for death in the world. What is it? Sin. It was impossible for Christ to remain in the grave. He had no sin of his own. What a declaration, though. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. What a declaration. 
Not only does he remove sin by the blood of his cross, but God there provides a perfect righteousness. A perfect righteousness for the sinner when this great exchange comes. The righteousness of God in him. Oh, I tell you, this is huge, this verse. Take note. It's not... <sighs> Take note of something. That just as the Lord Jesus Christ was not made a sinner, but judicially constituted sin. So, on the other hand, I'm getting into a doctrinal area briefly. On the other hand, it does not say that we are made righteous in ourselves. As though having nothing more to do with sin. He was constituted sin for us who knew no sin. We are in this great exchange given his perfect righteousness. But we don't work for it. We can't produce it. It's provided by God. When this great exchange takes place, your sins for his righteousness, it's complete. It's eternal. It's something that God does apart from you. It's not something you do. It's not something you produce. It's not a righteousness you bring forth. It's the righteousness of God in him. It is the judicial transference that constitutes us as having a righteousness acceptable to divine justice. You see, in this great exchange, our sins for his righteousness, God gives us a perfect righteousness. He accepts us, not in ourselves as sinners. We're accepted in Christ, in the Beloved, as in Ephesians chapter 1. We're accepted in Him. Oh yes, there will come a, a change. The sinner who comes to God by God's grace wants to walk with Him and wants to walk in His holy ways. But that's not why we're reconciled to God. And that's not the perfect righteousness we have. That only comes by Christ's righteousness given in account to us. That's the perfect righteousness that God accepts. That's where the blessed word comes. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It is because and only because of union with Christ that we are in him by faith that God accounts us righteous because it's the righteousness of Christ that God puts to our account. It becomes ours. And it becomes ours through faith. Through the wondrous gift of faith, justified by faith in Christ. Through faith, Faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. This is the only way redemption is applied. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. This is the only way that reconciliation to God is effected, having made peace by the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Colossians 1.20 This is the whole basis of reconciliation to God. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God 
in Him. We trust Him only. We look to Him alone. We have nothing of ourselves. It's like what I read today from a dear brother who sends out a little message every Lord's Day morning to pastors, many, many pastors, and very aptly doing so. Well, I think it was actually last Lord's Day morning he sent this one out, reminding us of a fellow who was called Jack the Huckster. And Jack the Huckster had heard a little message in song. I am a poor sinner and nothing at all. But Jesus Christ is my all in all. I am a poor sinner and nothing at all. But Jesus Christ is my all in all. He tried to join a church. They wanted to hear his testimony. I am a poor sinner and nothing at all. But Jesus Christ is my all in all. He had a hard time convincing them. But then that thrilled his soul. He trusted in the one he heard. He trusted him. He came as a poor and needy sinner. He came in the realization of one who truly had the greatest need. And he could only cry thereafter when he heard that little song. He said, that fits me perfectly. I am a poor sinner and nothing at all. But Jesus Christ is my all in all. There is no other gospel. There is no one at any time commissioned of God to preach any other gospel than this one. The only acceptable righteousness with God is the righteousness that comes only by faith, only by Christ, only by God's grace. Free grace. And only to those who quit looking to themselves and quit trying to make themselves righteous. Oh, there are many sinners when under conviction that'll come till they come to realize they can't do it. And they're brought to look away only to Christ, only to his cross, nowhere else. Christ and him crucified. Their only hope of acceptance with God, Jesus Christ, crucified. If there's any, under the sound of my voice, and you're a sinner. If you're not a sinner, don't listen. If there is a sinner, under the sound of my voice, surrender. Give up. Quit trying to make yourself acceptable. And only trust him who says, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Who says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. God bless the ministry of his holy word. Let's have a hymn. Anyone like to select a hymn this morning? What number is it?
to trust in Jesus, just to take him and his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and more. Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Yes, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing cleansing blood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Yes, his sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. that you could not and did not work but one given to you by God's wondrous grace in Christ and if you hear that gospel and not simply that we heard it we hear it those who are in Christ hear that gospel it's wondrous beyond anything Reconciled to God. He died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. What a glorious gospel. Daniel, would you come and dismiss us in prayer, please? Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Son this divine, sovereign plan to make a way of reconciliation through him. For there was no other way in which we might be brought back to you. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would lead us into an increase of faith that we would not fall into that pattern of trying to earn our own righteousness but that we would look to Christ and trust him completely for forgiveness and for the righteousness of God in Jesus name we pray Amen
need a little extension cord so you put it in right there. Yeah, or off his Mac or something. There might be an extension cord around here somewhere. I mean, a, a USB extension. So you plug the microphone. Do you want to put the computer on the floor? Yeah, right there. Right there beside the uh, We can leave that computer here. I just put AVG on it. I don't have some virus control, free stuff. I updated the thing and got Windows 10. Yeah, Windows has built-in antivirus. They did what? Windows has built-in antivirus. Oh. But since nobody's going to be taking this thing and surfing on the net or doing anything else except logging into YouTube, it's really very, very minimal. Wow. give it here. <laughs> Yeah. I was hoping I could get that up. That's why I was a little late. I thought y'all would probably take care of that. Yeah, I was planning we were, I was planning to leave in time to be here to take care of that for you and then we had a problem that I had to take care of before we could get here. So I was nonplussed. And uh, I'm very sorry to be late and couldn't do that for you. I didn't know you'd have to deal with the stress of getting that going. But it worked. I got it all set up yesterday, so all I have to do goes on the YouTube quick. Yeah, oh, that's great. But anyway, it can be taken down, put there now, because we're going to have to use that for the table. Yeah. the work of Not the best computer, but it's all you need.
be able to mess with it if he... Did he forget to stop it? It's still recording. <laughs>